It is the bond of family that links Moses to the choices ultimately made about his identity. He seeks first and foremost, not a people to lead, but to love. Welcome to Bible 365, Episode 17, Churchill, Moses, and Identity. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In 1932, Winston Churchill composed an essay titled, Moses, the Leader of a People. Churchill would write millions of words in his life, yet this was the only published piece of his that was directly about the Bible. Moses, Churchill wrote, quote, was the greatest of the prophets who spoke in person to the God of Israel. He was the national hero who led the chosen people out of the land of bondage, through the perils of the wilderness, and brought them to the very threshold of the promised land. He was the supreme lawgiver who received from God that remarkable code upon which the religious, moral, and social life of the nation was so securely founded, end quote. So Churchill began, and he concluded by insisting on the veracity of the biblical account. Quote, we may be sure, he asserted, that all these things happen just as they are set out according to Holy Writ. We may believe that they happen to people not so very different from ourselves, and that the impressions those people received were faithfully recorded and have been transmitted across the centuries with far more accuracy than many of the telegraphed accounts we read of the goings-on of today, end quote. Churchill, as Gertrude Himmelfarb notes, wrote this piece at one of the lowest moments in his career, when he was ignored as a has-been, and it was at this time that he was driven to examine the psychological journey of Moses, a man who ultimately achieves greatness. And it is this journey of the mind that we must take with Moses, for rightly understood, the early tale of a boy-raised Egyptian who becomes the most important Israelite in our history is also of a man who struggles with who exactly he is and what exactly his heritage has called him to be. Moses is nursed and weaned in his ancestral home before returning to the palace. Thus, his early identity from infancy is Hebrew, and he is, I believe, always aware of his origins. But from around three years old, he is returned to the daughter of Pharaoh. And Moses could, of course, have lived his entire life in comfort. What is striking about Moses is that he is an Israelite who is given the choice that millennia later many Jews in the West would face. Will you choose to be a Jew when society is not forcing you to be so? In the Mosaic age, the age of Egypt, no one else faced that choice. No one else had that choice. A slave was a slave and could not be made free. But Moses was raised in the palace, and the very drama of his story lies in the choice he makes, summed up succinctly in the clip biblical style in one extraordinary phrase. Chapter 2, verse 11. And it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown up, that he went out unto his brethren and looked upon their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew, one of his brethren. And he looked this way and that. And when he saw that there was no man, he smote the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And Moses went out to his brethren. It is the bond of family that links Moses to the choices ultimately made about his identity. He seeks his brothers. He seeks first and foremost, not a people to lead, but to love. Churchill understood this as the central drama at the heart of this part of Moses' tale. And I quote a few different bits of what he wrote. Quote, the years passed, the child is a man nurtured in the palace, 
ranking with many bastards or polygamous offspring. But he is no Egyptian. The potent blood of B'nai Israel is in his veins. Upon these general impressions, he sees an Egyptian beating an Israelite. No doubt a common spectacle, part of the daily social routine. But he has no doubts. Not for a moment does he hesitate. He knows which side he is on. The call of blood surges in him. He slays the Egyptian amid the loud and continuing applause of the insurgents of the ages, end quote. For Churchill, then, in this one act, to speak anachronistically, in this one moment, Moses becomes a Jew. Moses has embraced his brethren, but, in a sign of what is to come, it is not clear how wholeheartedly his brethren have embraced him. Verse 13, And he went out the second day, and behold, two men of the Hebrews were striving together, and he said to him that did the wrong, Wherefore smitest thou thy fellow? And he said, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Thinkest thou to kill me, as thou did the Egyptian? Soon, perhaps because of the Israelites themselves, Moses' treason against Pharaoh becomes known, and he is forced to flee to the Sinai wilderness, where he meets and marries a Midianite. Then the Torah, in an astonishing lacunae, lapses into silence, leaving the next many decades to our imagination skipping, it seems, a majority of Moses' life. And the very absence is the message. The lack of reception he discovered among the people for whom he yearned has caused, perhaps, an identity crisis. He has decided not to be an Egyptian, but his own people may not want him. Churchill was one of the few Englishmen who had actually been to the Sinai Desert, and he tells its readers of the significance of Moses' exile. Every prophet, he wrote, has to come from civilization, but every prophet has to go into the wilderness. He must have a strong impression of a complex society and all that it has to give, and then he must serve periods of isolation and meditation. This is the process by which psychic dynamite is made. This is what Churchill writes. So what is Moses' meditation about? What is his psychic dynamite? It is, as we shall see, a journey of self-discovery but it will take many years to make itself manifest. Moses seems to have lost his bond to his people. The Torah even reveals that at least one of his children is uncircumcised. And yet, as he shepherds in the desert, something, something draws this assimilated man to Mount Sinai, to the mountain of God. Exodus 3.2 And an angel of the Lord appeared out of him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush, And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, but the bush was not consumed. This is scripture. Churchill's own gloss on this scene is worthwhile. Quote, One day, when the sun rode fierce on the heavens and the dust devils and mirages danced and flickered amid the scrub, he saw the burning bush. It burned, yet it was not consumed. It was a prodigy. The more it burned, the less it was consumed. It seemed to renew itself from its own self-consumption. Perhaps, Churchill concludes, It was not a bush at all, but his own heart was aflame, with a fire never to be quenched while the earth supports human beings. This is extraordinary. Now, I do believe that it was a bush, but Churchill understood that the fire of Sinai was not only on that mountain, not only in that bush, but also in Moses' heart. For Moses, we can suggest this is a burning desire to truly discover who he is. Then, from the midst of the bush to the man seeking an identity, God speaks. Chapter 2, verse 6. And he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob.
In this way, God introduces himself and then informs Moses that he is sending him to Pharaoh to demand that Israel be allowed to serve the Almighty in the desert. Now note what God does not say. He does not speak of himself here as the universal creator of heaven and earth, though, of course, he is that God. The Almighty's focus is on family, identity. I am the God of your father, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I have chosen you to represent me before Pharaoh and to lead Israel to freedom. Here, I must editorially insert a fascinating comment by the rabbis, one which is actually linked to an important cinematic trivia question, which is, who provided the voice of God that spoke to Charlton Heston from the burning bush in the Ten Commandments? The incredible answer is provided by the book Empire of Dreams, a biography of Cecil B. DeMille. Quote, Casting the voice of God presented understandable problems. We tried everything suggested by anyone, remembered DeMille. They tried individual actors. They tried a chorale. They tried voices underwater. They tried voices amplified in canyons. There was even some thought about using mechanical means as with an organ, with the sound department organizing the tones into words, end quote. Amazingly, as DeMille tells us in his own memoir, it was Jewish tradition, rabbinic exegesis, that helped here. He writes, quote, An ancient Jewish legend solved half our problem. The Midrash Rabbah says that from the burning bush, God spoke to Moses in the voice of Moses' father, Amram, so as not to frighten him. That lovely courtesy of God suggested that our audience too might accept a not unfamiliar voice, a little slowed and deepened. And so the voice of God at the burning bush is Charlton Heston's voice. End quote. Thus, according to the rabbis, the voice of God used was that of Moses' father, a voice that he would have heard while being nursed in his Hebrew home, but a voice that he would not have heard for many decades. The Midrash is communicating something important about the story of Moses itself. God here at Sinai seeks to help him rediscover his roots, for it is identity that is the issue. Consider Moses' response to the call of God. Verse 11, And Moses said unto God, Who am I? that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children out of Egypt. Who am I? The simple understanding of his question is that Moses expresses humility. But another interpretation is that Moses is expressing doubt as to his ultimate identity. As Rabbi Jonathan Sachs writes, to the question of who am I, quote, there are two possible answers. The first, Moses is a prince of Egypt. He had been adopted as a baby by Pharaoh's daughter. He had grown up in the royal palace. He dressed like an Egyptian, looked and spoke like an Egyptian. End quote. Rabbi Sachs further notes another possibility, which is that now Moses is a Midianite. As he puts it, quote, He had made his home in Midian, married a Midianite woman, Zipporah, daughter of a Midianite priest, and was content to live there quietly as a shepherd. We tend to forget that he spent many years there. He left Egypt, writes Rabbi Sachs, as a young man and was already 80 years old at the start of his mission when he first stood before Pharaoh. So, Rabbi Sachs concludes, when Moses asks, who am I? It is not just that he feels himself unworthy. He feels himself uninvolved. He may have been Jewish by birth, but he had not suffered the fate of his people. He had not grown up as a Jew. He had not lived among Jews. He had good reason to doubt that the Israelites would even recognize him as one of them. End quote. This too, ladies and gentlemen, is the meaning of the Midrash, which comments on God's words of introduction. I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. The bond of family, God is saying, bind you to me and to my people. And God says this according to this magnificent Midrash in the voice of Moses' father, calling an 80-year-old man back to his childhood 
predicating this covenantal call on what Lincoln famously referred to as the mystic chords of memory. God is saying, join the story of your father and of the patriarchs. Read this way, God's words are the burning bush, according to the Midrash. It's not only for the story of Sinai. It's not only for the origin tale of Moses. God's words speak to all of us because God calls out to us all. I am the God of your ancestors. And this call is made in the voices of our father and our mother and of all our predecessors. They call out to us. Moses then suffers the first, but certainly not the last, identity crisis in the history of the Jewish people. What then turns the tide? What inspires him to embrace his destiny? In my own view, it is God's final promise to Moses from the burning bush. After Moses resists the call several times, the Almighty erupts, Exodus 4.12. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron your brother the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he cometh forth to meet thee, and when he seeth thee, he will be glad in his heart. Go, says God, if you fear to speak before Pharaoh, find your brother, find your family, and thereby find yourself. Thus Moses joins Aaron before Pharaoh, uttering the immortal words that we will examine on Sunday. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, let my people go. Pharaoh is unmoved. He increases the slaves' labors, and Israel itself, exhausted, begins to ignore Moses' promise of redemption, and God's messenger seems to lose heart. Exodus 6.12 And Moses spoke before God, saying, Behold, the children of Israel have not hearkened unto me. How then shall Pharaoh hear me of uneloquent lips? And suddenly, in a seeming non sequitur, the book of Exodus in chapter 6 launches into an entire history of Moses' family, concluding in verse 26 with, These are that Aaron and Moses. To them the Lord said, Bring out the children of Israel from Egypt of their hosts. These are they that spoke to Pharaoh king of Egypt to bring out the children of Israel from Egypt. These are that Moses and Aaron. Why is the Bible telling us this? Amidst his crisis of confidence, the Bible is informing us that if Moses ultimately fulfills his mission, it was in the end through an understanding of who he truly was, who he was meant to be. From this point forward in the Exodus, Moses never flags, and he never fails. The story of the greatest Jew in our history thus speaks to Jewish diaspora identity today. In his book about how Moses has impacted popular culture, the author Bruce Feiler recounts how in the 1950s, Cecil B. DeMille had pleaded with Paramount Pictures to make a film about Moses, but received only resistance from Jewish executives until they were overruled by the CEO, Adolf Zucker, an assimilated Hungarian Jew, who said that, quote, I find it embarrassing and deplorable that it takes Cecil here, a Gentile no less, to remind us Jews of our heritage. What was World War II fought for, anyway? We should get down on our knees and say thank you that he wants to make a picture on the life of Moses, end quote. Zucker perhaps did not know that DeMille's mother was Jewish. But the Moses of the movie he made was a powerful statement about Jewish identity to the Jews in America who saw the film. As Filer writes, quote, at a time when many Jews still struggled with assimilation, Moses' open embrace of his faith was a powerful statement of self-confidence, end quote. It is striking that Churchill chose to write about Moses, because Churchill was not devout. As the historian Andrew Roberts once put it, Churchill believed in God, but by and large, in his view, God's job was taking care of Winston Churchill. Yet, here, in the Exodus story, there was suddenly something that inspired his religious awe. Churchill writes that, quote, at any rate, 
there is no doubt about one miracle. This wandering tribe, in many respects indistinguishable from numberless nomadic communities, grasped and proclaimed an idea of which all the genius of Greece and all the power of Rome were incapable. There was to be only one God. End quote. The astonishing fact about Jewish history is that so often Jews themselves fail to marvel at the miracle that was so obvious to the greatest non-Jewish statesman of the modern age. Like Moses, the burning bush speaks to us all, speaks within us all. I am the God of thy fathers, calling us not only to God, but to our fathers, asking us as Jews to discover who we are and who we are truly called to be. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together next week. Signing off.